Good evening, everybody. This is another episode of the First Intuition Student Podcast. This evening, we're talking about what to do during your exam. And I'm joined this evening by my good friend and colleague, David Malthouse. Good evening, Dave. Hi there, Ben. How are you this week? Um, I'm really, really good. It's a busy, busy teaching season at the moment. We've got some exams that are being sat next week. I've actually been teaching in Ipswich and it means I'm late to the party. Apologies, people that are here live, but I was late getting into the or back to the office this evening. So I am here. This might be a slightly shorter version of the podcast, therefore, but I've made it. Dave, how are you? Yes. OK, Ben, it's been half term holiday down here in Essex. So I've I've I last week ran a hockey camp for children aged eight to 14. Um, we had 30 children for two days, which probably made me more tired at the end of two days than two days of, of my regular job. So I was quite glad to get back to teaching accountants at the end of last week because it, it was easier to manage, shall we say, than a, a group of eight, eight to 14 year olds running around with hockey sticks. I'm sure they all had a great time and you got some time in the evening to go and put your feet up because I'm sure you deserved it. One of the benefits, if there are any benefits of being stuck in traffic, which I have been today getting back to the office, is I was listening to the radio in the car and I thought of you, Dave. I, I think about things that we talk about all the time. Something will just spark when I hear it and think we've talked about that on the podcast. Going back to the previous episode we did, a great look at interest rates. They were talking on the radio on my drive this evening about uh, a meeting and I'm sure, Dave, you will have been in the situation in your life where you've sat through some pretty long meetings. But there's a meeting going on today that's going to last for three days. And it is the meeting of the, the Bank of England deciding what's going to happen to interest rates. And it made me think, oh, brilliant. That's what we were talking about on our last episode of the podcast. My prediction, Ben, is they will do nothing with interest rates this month. So uh, a meeting for three days just to decide they're going to let it stay as it is. Yes. Yep. Well, that that's what they were saying on the radio as well. So um, I'll look out. Maybe next time I'm listening to the BBC, they will introduce David Malthouse as the finance expert that's going to come on and talk about what the Bank of England might be considering. Um, I would hope so. And I think they should do. Um, I, I know that the Bank of England have got to, their, their remit is to bring inflation down to a more manageable rate of around 2%. That's what the, the objective is. The thought process behind interest rate increases are that it's, if you've got a mortgage, interest rates go up you're paying more on your mortgage you've got less disposable income because you've got less income you can't buy as many things which hopefully should start cooling down the price because there are fewer people wanting to buy stuff um however the bank of england don't just look at the headline inflation rate that we see they look at all of the other things that feed into that so they will be looking at oil prices and what are oil prices currently doing? How is that going to impact on petrol prices in the future? How will those petrol prices then impact on transportation costs in the future? And then how will those transportation costs then impact us on the cost of the food that we buy in supermarkets? And those of you that listen to our food and finance podcast will know that a lot of those food prices are kind of set six to nine months in advance. So you could be looking at petrol prices today impacting on food prices in kind of like 50 15 months time so that's what they're looking at which is all the data that I don't get to see and that's what they're pouring over and they're looking at all of these different things to try and establish 
do they need to increase or decrease um, interest rates in order to control or to release inflation a little bit? So it's, it, you know, I say they're going to hold it steady because in my mind, they're going to hold it steady. Not much has changed since last month, but I don't see all that underlying data. So there could be other stuff that's going to cause them to make a decision that I wouldn't expect them to make. We did well there. We plugged two previous episodes of the podcast in one trail, didn't we? Um, just a reminder to everybody, we've got a vast array of topics we've talked about on previous episodes. They are all still available, so please go and check them out. I've actually had some really nice comments from people that have listened to the most recent one, the interest rates one, Dave. So well done, because that, that was your idea. And I've had a few people say how great it was how it made much more sense of things that people were hearing on the news and seeing in their studies. So that's what we we try and do. I suppose we'd better get on to tonight's topic. I was conscious that we've done episodes previously talking about the run-up to the exam. We've done an episode, I believe, about the night before the exam and your checklist of things to tick off. I think we've even done one about the morning of your exam and how to make sure you get to the right place at the right time, full of energy, ready to go. But I don't think we've done too much about what you do during the exam. As soon as you actually get in the room, these days, computerized exams, the computer key code is put in and you are then up and running. So if it's OK with you, Dave, I'd like to explore some of our experiences and things that we've spoken to students about over the years with regards to during the exam tips. Yeah, let's go for it. So I suppose the start point is what would you say your initial reaction would be when you were told you may now start your exam? I think a little bit of relief. Because I can now get into it. Um, and this is what it, this is what it's all about. This is your cup final, isn't it, Ben? You've worked hard. You've gone through the preliminary rounds. You've done all the hard work. You've done all the training. This is your chance to show the examiner how much you know, how much you've learned. So a little bit of relief, a little bit of apprehension because you never know what's over that page. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm generally feeling a little bit relieved. And what I really want is, you know, much like a batsman coming out, what I want is to get a couple of runs in my first over. Okay, just settle down into my rhythm. I don't want to get a shocker, you know, a bouncer up around my neck first ball. I just want to get something that's going to let me play in and then start accumulating marks in the exam. I think a deep breath is required at this moment. There is a lot of adrenaline, a lot of energy. I don't know if excitement's the right term. But I think sometimes you just need to settle down a moment and, and settle yourself into the exam. It doesn't happen in all of the exams now. But I remember when I was studying, we used to get time to read the exam before we were allowed to actually start writing our answers. And I think they've done away with that in lots of the qualifications and lots of the exams now. So my presumption is most of our students, as soon as they say your exam is started, can actually start doing something without that natural time. Do you think it is a good idea? You talked about getting some runs on the board quickly in your cricket analogy. Um, do you think it is a good idea jumping straight in to question one as soon as they say go? Depends on the exam, Ben. Um, my, my, one of my favourite exams, as you know, is the Advanced Performance Management exam at ACCA. And you're faced there with a big case study style question at the beginning. And what I would do 
in that particular case is I, I would actually have pre-planned my time and I would pre-plan for the first 15 minutes of that exam to be exclusively for reading the question. I go, go in, go, I'm going to do question one first. It's a big case study. 15 minutes, I'm going to spend reading the question and understanding it. There's a very specific way that I read the question. And we'll probably come to that in a minute. But I would give myself the time to read. And you're right, deep breath. And we've talked about the, the power of a deep breath before in the your body's natural state when when it's threatened is the whole flight or fight response, which which takes oxygen away from your brain and puts it to the other organs that you need in order to run. So it actually reduces your ability to kind of think straight and process information. Your way to switch that off is to take deep breaths. If you take deep breaths, it reconnects the oxygen supply with your brain, meaning that you can think more clearly. So deep breath, absolutely. And then for me, in those big exams, yeah, it's all about you some time to read and plan because that will help you in the long run in that paper you said something that i found really interesting and something that i was also thinking you said you'd pre-prepared your time plan yep and i hope the moment that you start your exam is not the first time a student has thought about the time and the fact we know the exams that we teach for are particularly time pressured exams yep. it's part of the challenge that is put into the exam modules that we teach for that the exam will be a lot to get done in the time that you are given so I wonder if you would like to share your insights on on what you think a good time plan would be and any ways you think a student needs to be mindful of actually sticking to it in the exam because it's great having a plan but it all goes out of the window as soon as they <laughs> say start absolutely so the the kind of tried and trusted old-fashioned way of planning your time is to take the length of your exam in minutes so say your exam is a two hour exam, that's 120 minutes, take your 120 minutes, divide it by the number of marks in the exam, which is normally 100, that gives you 1.2 minutes for every mark in the exam. So if you then apply that formula, I've got a 10 mark question, 10 times 1.2 is 12. I'm going to spend 12 minutes doing a 10 mark question. And if I apply that timing correctly to every question in the exam, it means that I will exactly finish the last question of my exam at the point that the clock ticks around to the final minute of the exam. So that, that's the, the kind of classical way to plan your time. Now, I don't think that works that well for all exams. It does work for exams where you've got big questions in every part of the exam. It works brilliantly there. Where you've got small questions, and I'm thinking here things like um, definitely ACCA exams, um, where you've got short form questions that are two marks each. You know, so are you really going to measure your time and say, right, I've got three and a half minutes for this question, then I'm going to stop and spend three and a half minutes on the next multiple choice question. It just isn't practical to do that. So where you've got, say, a 20 mark section of the exam, which is all short form questions, I would use your formula for time and minutes across the whole section and say, right, I'm going to give myself 36 minutes to do those 20 marks worth of questions and, and then use that block of time to do that block of questions. That's a really good tip. And we do see that more and more with the short form questions. Some of them you can answer pretty quickly. Yep. Some of them it is a case sometimes of even, is it true or false or put a tick in the yep. box? Others maybe require some calculations just to get a number that you're then going to put in a box yep. on the screen. And that's going to take you a lot longer. 
So a really great tip to say for the, the shorter form questions, look at your time across a series. And actually, I encourage students when they are training, when they are practicing for the exam to probably do that. I think doing batches of maybe 10 questions yep. would on average be three minutes a question. But saying if I can get 10 questions done in 30 minutes, it will take account that some I could get done quicker, but some's going to take me a bit, bit longer. You mentioned the marks available, and that was something else that I wanted to touch on. You might cover it in a moment. You mentioned how you would read a question, but that's something I would always want to identify during the exam. How many marks are available for each question and each sub requirement within it? We've talked about that from a time perspective, but it also indicates the amount of content you need to produce for that section of the exam. Yeah, absolutely. So where you've got a, oh, the marks are going to indicate where you need to spend time. So if you've got a 20 mark requirement, you know, that's going to take you time. You know, they're expecting a lot from you. Now, fortunately, a lot of the the questions that I have to, um, the, or the questions that I would be setting students to complete are numerical. So a 20 mark tax calculation is going to require quite a lot of work compared to a three mark tax calculation. And both of them could say, can you calculate someone's income tax? So I know the 20 mark one is going to have loads of tricks in it. I know it's going to have some complexity in it. I know it's going to have some really tough marks to achieve. A three mark one, we should be able to do that pretty quickly. Now, Ben, you you do a lot more written exams than I do. What does a the, the mark allocation in a written question tell you about what you've got to do? I think there's there's two elements to it. There's the, the marks available. And my gut feel is if you base it on one mark scored per point you make in your answer, yep. that's a good baseline. But then the requirement might have a dual element to it. So examiners tend to throw in verbs, a plug for another podcast episode where we talked about the verbs that the examiner is actually asking you to do. And my gut feel would be if you're asked to identify and explain something, you might be able to say, well, actually, I might be able to get half a mark for identifying saying what and a further full mark for then explaining the whys and the wherefores based on the scenario question. So at that point, I'm thinking maybe one and a half marks for every point I make in my answer. If I've therefore, for example, got a nine mark requirement, one and a half marks each. I'm going to need to break that down and think how many marks per point and how many points do I need, but then stick to that and try and structure it. Sometimes, however, in a written question, the examiner will actually ask for, can you suggest five implications of this? Can you suggest five weaknesses with the internal controls? In which case you need to do as you're told. If the examiner's asked you for five, you need to come up with five. And occasionally that's something I see students doing. If they've only put down three separate points, they know they've automatically dropped marks in that section of the answer. Yes, there might be three that you think of first, but really you need to get another fourth and a fifth point down. On the flip side, sometimes I see students where it says suggest five weaknesses and they've put down seven in their answer. That is not going to score you any marks and is also going to waste time on that requirement that you should be moving on and spending somewhere else. You talked about reading the question. I'd be interested to hear some of your insights in how you would approach 
reading a question? I know the styles of exams vary, but but what would be your standard approach to reading a question, Dave? I'm going to put to one side multiple choice questions and I'm going to go for the longer form questions. So first thing that I would always do is read the requirement. So go straight to the requirement, ignore all of the narrative of the question and start looking at what they're actually asking you to do. And so there's five requirements. I'm going to read all five of those requirements. I'm going to understand what they want me to do. If I don't fully understand the requirements, I'm going to read them again. Okay, so read the requirements, read them a second time if you need to. And one of the, and, and this is where you can start getting the runs on the board. Because if there are five requirements, the chances are one of those requirements is going to be for pure textbook knowledge. So it might be task number one wants you to do an income tax calculation. Task number two wants you to say when the tax return needs to be filed. Now, filing dates are something that is relatively straightforward to to understand because it will always be for it will always be for the same tax year in in a particular exam. They might even say, "Can you advise the clients on the penalties that will be due if they fail to submit the tax return on time?" That's again textbook knowledge that we can write down. So there's going to be something there where you're going to look at it and say, "I know the answer to that already." And that should hopefully give you that feeling of a little bit of a feeling of relief, a little bit of a feeling of I've already got some marks here. Okay, So once I've then understood what the requirements are, depends on the exam that I'm doing. So if it's numerical, I would actually start to put together the, the pro forma calculation that I need to put together. So if it's a tax calculation keep talking about tax companies, I'll have my non-savings income, my savings income, my dividend income listed out on my spreadsheet for my exam. Um, if it's a written question, then I'm probably not going to start writing a written answer before reading the rest of the requirements. Okay, But I now know what the requirements are. Then I start reading the question. And I start kind of almost eliminating stuff. So paragraph number one is normally an introduction to what the business does. So as you read through that, because you know the requirements, you'll know whether any of that is relevant. So in financial accounting exams, that's quite often where they'll tell you about when a year end is or something like that. So that's something that may well be important. In a strategy exam, they're going to tell you what trade the business is carrying out. So again, that's going to be something really useful. Oh, they're a manufacturing business. Brilliant. That means there's going to be a lot of costing in there. That means that they're actually making stuff. There's shipping, there's transportation. They're actually selling physical items. There's going to be marketing involved with that. Who do they sell to? So you get all of these things we're starting to think of. Whereas if you don't know what the requirements asking you you're just reading it going oh that's nice they're a business and then i'll forget that by the time i move on and um, and then as you read through you should be able to pull certain elements out of the question so oh there's a number here i'm going to need that i put that in my tax calculation or oh they're going through a merger okay why are they going through a merger who are they merging with what impact is that going to have on my answer so i actually spend a lot of time reading and it's not just reading it the way you'd read a book reading it with the the requirements alongside you so you can pull out the right information to then start to prepare your answers. I think at that point, there are a few things I always like students to look for and double, double check. Increasingly, students get more and more information that they need to deal with to actually start answering a question. But a few of the common things I say to students, make sure you've double checked our dates Dates are often very, very important for exam questions. 
Quite often you will be told the date that you are at now. You'll be told the date that things happen. And it's really easy, particularly under exam pressure, to misread dates and get completely the wrong answer, not because you don't know what you're doing, but because you fail to realize, are they talking about last year? Are they asking me about next year? Are they talking about things that have happened before the year end or after the year end or even straddling the year end? Right the way through the qualification, we need to understand dates. We need to think, are they talking in terms of quarters? Are they talking in terms of months? Are they talking in terms of years? And where are we positioned? The other, and I, I call it silly mistake. I'm thinking as I'm saying the word, it's only a silly mistake if you think this is silly, but it's something that can cost you marks, is actually mixing up the numbers with regards to the amounts of money they are talking about. Some exams and examiners will do things in round thousand pounds. Other examiners will put the zeros on. That freaks students out initially, but it really shouldn't matter as long as you are consistent and understand what you are doing. Where I see students making mistakes is where in some of their calculation, they're putting the zeros on the end. In bits of the calculation, they're doing it in round thousands. And I guess it's just the pressure of the exam. They probably don't sense check the numbers to think that number can't make any sense in the context of what I'm talking about elsewhere. They were actually talking, uh, another plug for listening to the radio, they were talking on the radio this week about what things are covered in standard maths at school. And they were saying, should we really still be teaching people at school how to do long division? And there was a bit of a debate on the radio and someone had phoned in and said it would be much better to give them much more enhanced skills in estimating numbers, because that's a really good life skill to decide whether the number I've just put there can't make any sense. It is way, way too big or way, way too small. Now, that can be because you've misread the numbers. It can be because you're rushing and you've carelessly typed the number into your calculator incorrectly when you're coming up with the answer. But a bit of care. So care around the dates and care around the, the size and scale of the numbers. And nowadays, with all, with all exams being online, being computer-based, and particularly where you've got access to spreadsheet software, I, do, I, I, I don't see why that should be such an issue now, because you know why, why would you work in thousands when you can just use the whole number there and the spreadsheet pulls everything before you always worked in thousands because it was shorthand and it was quicker than writing zero, 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 zero. But where the, the machine is doing the calculation for you, it should make it a little bit easier. Something that I always get students to, and this really infuriates loads of my students until they do the exam, is that I, I always get them to write the units next to the number. So uh, if it's litres, write litres. If it's metres, write metres. If it's kilograms, use kilograms. If it's dollars, use dollars. Pounds, use pounds. And it's amazing how many people say, oh, I don't want to do it. I'm just going to write the numbers down. And then they get into trouble because they divide the wrong number by the wrong number. Or they add two things together and they're adding units, you know, it's like a number of units of inventory to the cost of something else and adding the two numbers together. And it gives you the wrong answer because you're not, adding two things that are the same. So I'm a massive believer in trying to make sure that you always attach the units to the numbers. I always talk about keep the words with the numbers. And if you keep the words with the numbers, it makes the numbers easier. Good. And if it's a free format working that you can show your workings in the exam, it makes it so much easier to mark. 
And even if you have gone slightly off, you're probably going to get the carry forward marks because they can follow your workings. I have really been plugging that. You mentioned that to me a few weeks back and I've been teaching some of the level four applied management accounting classes. And I've really been stressing that to all of my students. Also suggesting they continue that up in the written parts of the exam. When you are explaining the variance, make sure you tell in your written part, am I talking about a difference in hours, a difference in minutes, a difference in kilograms of material, or putting a pound sign in front of the number in your written answer can really actually add a few extra marks because the examiner really gets the sense you are communicating what's going on for the business. Absolutely. And if you say to someone, you know, what is the impact of this to your profit? And if they read their answer and come back and say, oh, 10,000 kilograms. No, that doesn't make sense. You're right. You need to place a value on those kilograms. So it quickly flags up areas where we maybe haven't completed the question because we've used the wrong unit or we haven't uh, haven't converted into the right units. So we've read the question. We're aware of the requirements. I think the next thing is just keeping an eye on the clock, on the time. Because as you say, it's all right having that plan, but you need to be very, very disciplined. I've actually been having this discussion with my class today. Potentially, even if you overrun in one requirement by 10 minutes, you're going to say, oh, big deal. It's only 10 minutes. But actually, if you compound that up over the number of requirements of an exam, that can be very fatal. It means potentially the whole last task you don't get round to answering because you've just run out of time. And we hear this from examiners, Dave, don't we? Students that leave out whole requirements or whole tasks or questions statistically are the students that are most likely to fail an exam. Absolutely. I, I've there, there was an exam that I used to teach that where well, it's no longer an exam because it's the syllabus have changed so many times for that was incredibly time pressured. And it, it was almost felt that it was written in such a way that no human being could ever finish the whole exam in the time because it was it was there was that much to do in the exam. The thing that I noticed is that whenever people were unsuccessful and I spoke to them, they always said, Oh, I didn't get to question three. I did question one and two, but I didn't finish the whole exam. I didn't do question three. And it was always the case. People that were unsuccessful didn't finish the exam. And if you've got three questions that are all equal, that are all 33 or 34 marks each, as it was the case at the time, you take one of those away. You've now got 66 marks available from the two questions that you've done. If your pass mark is 55%, you've got to get 55 marks out of 66 that are available. Okay, now that's the kind of performance that the prize winners are going to get in the exam. So just through not managing your time, you're not giving yourself the chance to score anything. And I know I've seen a graph somewhere of the marks that you score in a question over time. And it very, very sharply goes up to start with. So the first 10 minutes of a question, you're scoring marks, you know, mark, 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 mark. As you start to go on the question, the number of marks you get starts to starts to ease off. And at the end of a question, you could be spending five minutes to get one extra mark in the exam, just to squeeze an extra mark out. If you could use that five marks, five minutes to get into another question and start that curve off when it's going mark, 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 it's a far better use of your time to, to make sure that you've attempted every question. I think at that point, my, my focus switches on time. We've acknowledged these exams are incredibly time pressured. 
But a question I get asked from students a lot, if I get to the end of the exam and I've still got five minutes left, what should I do at that point? Dave, have you got any tips for students what to do towards the end of the exam, particularly if they've got time over? Would you advise leaving early because you can do or would you advise doing something else? I think it depends on who you are. And I, I've heard this work in two different ways. So I've heard some people who have then gone back through their exam, have checked their work, and they've recognised that they've made a mistake, they've corrected it, and they're really relieved that they've been able to spot that they had made a mistake and they've corrected it. Now, if you are the kind of person that can do that and can audit their own work and is happy to check, then it's a wonderful use of five minutes because you will pick up those little things. I've also met other people who will then look at a question and then will then second guess themselves and then will start thinking, oh, did I did I get it the wrong way around? Should it have been a debit when it was a credit? And then they'll cross something out and then they'll write something and then they'll cross that out again. And at the end of it, they'll end up guessing despite the fact their first answer was probably right. So I think it very much depends on you and who you are. Um, if it's a written question, then you could go back and add something. You could explain something more fully, but it very much depends on who you are. Um, you know, personally, I'm quite analytical. So I would go through my own answers. I would look at them and I would just be kind of almost self-marking going, yeah, I'm happy with that answer. I'm happy with that answer. I'm happy with that answer. This answer. Yeah, I did guess that one. Is there, a, you know, is it the best guess or you know is there something i could do to work it out to get closer to what i consider to be the right answer i think for me i would if i've got time left over and the exam has got written elements i would go back to those i think yes you might be able to add some extra points but i think you can also tidy up your answer actually simple things like just looking at the structure could i break it down a bit more retrospectively adding headings can actually make it so much easier to read and clean up the communication you're using yep. so you were probably rushing to get the points down if you have got three four minutes left at the end and you can just go back and structure it and put a very brief heading above each of your points a lot of the exams these days have got professional marks we've touched on this in previous episodes of the pod before but making sure that you have got a quick introduction, couple of lines at the start. We know how many exam questions have just a mark in the mark scheme for a conclusion at the end. So that's your chance to go and make sure, have I put a heading conclusion? Have I concluded on everything? Have I really formatted it in a way that I would be happy to submit? Because that sometimes goes out of the window in the heat of the moment when you're getting mark, 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 as you said, on that upward curve. Something else I wanted to mention was if something goes wrong in the exam, technically with either the software or there is some form of admin problem. Dave, I don't know about your guys in Chelmsford, but I sometimes hear from the, the, the students who've sat exams in my part of the world a day, two days after the exam. They drop an email in saying, oh, by the way, I'm just going to let you know there was a technical glitch. The software crashed in my exam. And I really do start slapping my forehead and thinking, oh, my goodness, why didn't this person put their hand up immediately? We don't get involved in invigilation. Dave, have you done any invigilating in your, your career? 
in my in my career i have but not for a very long time so there there is a um a rule that, that we apply definitely that tutors should never be able to invigilate any exams that they have taught and i always extend that to if you have ever taught them so um i, I don't think it, we are one well, ethically i don't think we're the right people because if you have taught the exam and you know what's in the exam and you've seen live exam papers, then that is going to impact how you teach other people. And I don't think that's fair on the students that don't have that. So we're always very careful to make sure that we don't put people in the exam room who may well be teaching students where they can see or have access to the to the live exams. I mean, it is something that the the institutes would you know, they would put us under some kind of measures if we did allow people to to invigilate. But in the dim and distant past, before I taught the breadth of subjects that I had taught, I have I have invigilated. And, and that is a, a professional job. We have got invigilators. The institutes pay those people to invigilate. They are there for the students benefit, as well as just making sure that the exams are conducted in a ethical way. And so at that point, if there is a problem in your exam, flag it immediately. Don't wait. Make them aware. Get them to record everything. Get them to get all of the evidence at the point, because it's really hard sometimes to recount back even hours after the exam exactly what the problem was and the potential impact. But we see this um, potentially in the world of computer based exams computers have glitches they have problems and the institutes are wholly accepting of any feedback and do take that into consideration when they are marking and moderating students answers as long as it's been flagged at the time in the right way absolutely it ha you have to flag it the moment that you you have an issue if you're taking it in an exam center and something's happened that's caused you to have an issue with your performance in the exam you need to report it as quickly as you possibly can either to the invigilators or directly to the institute it just yeah the sooner you do it the better so always always flag it up um i'm conscious that we're going well beyond time now my fault for starting us late but is there any final things you wanted to mention if somebody's got their exam listening to this the night before any final thoughts you've got for what they're going to go through tomorrow okay something that i i always try and tell students is number one i hope you are a well-prepared student i hope that you've done the work that i've asked you to um i hope you've completed the mock exams i hope you've done the revision questions and you've put the work in so i'm going to assume that you have done the work so if you've done the work and this is going to sound really odd you want the exam to be a hard exam okay i always think you're kind of going into an exam where a group of people are going to be unsuccessful and a group of people are going to are going to be successful and you want to be in the successful group and i tend to think that a hard exam if you're a well prepared student yes you'll find it hard yes you might not get your best mark but if you're well prepared you're going to pass that exam if the exam is easy and you walk into it and think, oh, that's an absolute walk in the park and everyone else finds it easy. Then those students that haven't worked as hard as you, that have maybe looked at half the syllabus, but the questions have been really nice for them, that student's going to pass the exam okay, at the expense potentially of someone that's worked really, really hard. So I would always look at 
go into the exam, you want that exam to be hard. You should come out of the exam thinking, brilliant, that was a hard exam. That means that the really good students that have worked hard are going to be successful, but the students that haven't worked hard are really going to be found out. So I, I always think go into an exam and really hope that it is hard because if you're well prepared, a hard exam should be good for you. Yeah, I think trust your preparation. Um, be present in the moment. Try to enjoy it. That's a really cliche thing to say as somebody that hasn't done an exam now formally for quite a while. But I think you're you're right, Dave. This is the the build up. This is the crescendo of everything you've been working to, and so trust yourself, trust your judgment, and make sure you try and put something down for every requirement. I think that's my biggest piece of advice. Really, really try and get some ideas down, even if you think I'm slightly missing the point. It is better to put it than not put it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the FI podcast with your hosts, Ben and Dave. As always, you can head over to the show notes where you can find the links and resources spoken about in today's episode. Please remember to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode and leave a rating and review.